Let's begin with a few questions. And uh, I've had a couple of questions here. We've had a couple of questions, and um, we'll attempt to, to answer the questions that have come in. Few people have um, asked me about the booklet here, and some came in late and did not get a copy of the booklet, and they've asked about that. Um, we ordered 250. I was told I would have a seminar of 150 to 200, and uh, we ordered 250, and uh, they are all gone. And those were gifts that we gave to you. But just like salvation is not free, but Jesus had to pay it with his blood, I had to pay for those books. And so they are my gift to you. But I did not get them free because I don't own the printing presses where they print them. So I had to, we had to purchase them, and the General Conference said that I could take them with me. And so they, it's about, I think they were sold for about $5 a piece. So it's about $1,000 that we gave to young people here, and we were delighted to do that and want you to feel that uh, it's something that the General Conference gave to you because we believe that we need to prepare a group of young people for the coming of Jesus, and we are delighted to do that. Um, there is a... Uh, a small supply house called Seminars Unlimited, Seminars Unlimited, and if you want that book, you can certainly call them, write them. It's down in Texas, and they will be happy to give you a copy. I am revising this whole seminar. I wrote it many, many, many years ago. I'm writing a new seminar on last day events, and uh, my friend Dan Houghton, Hart Publications, will have copies of that in the very, very near future. Um, what I want to do is and will be done very soon, is produce a little longer seminar on last day events for local Seventh-day Adventist churches with the graphics, with the booklets and lessons that pastors can use, young people can teach in their local churches. Because I really believe that if we get this message out, it will change. Uh, it does a lot of things. It brings revival, brings renewal. I just did a series on the Holy Spirit, five presentations on the Holy Spirit. Some here were with me in that series up at a church up at Portland, Maine, and the Lord really came down, and God did some incredibly powerful, powerful things. And so we're at a time in there's history where we need to share God's message as he has given it in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and the Lord will bring mighty revival to this church as we do that. Let's start with some questions, some questions on the last uh, series of meetings or anything that comes to your head. Yes, Kevin. Yes, um, Mark, I'd like you to flesh out a little bit more perhaps when you were talking about the issue of pulling up or not pulling up the tears uh, in, in, in terms of the shaking. My sense is that if you and I were to engage one another on this, that we probably would be in pretty much uh, complete agreement. But, you know, there is a tape going on here, and, you know, sometimes things, just like you said a moment ago, sometimes things can be taken out of context, and, 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 and things can appear to be what they are not. But um, we both know as pastors, and I think many others here who are not pastors know that when Jesus said not to pull up the tares, he wasn't saying tolerate open sin mm -hmm. and open apostasy in the church. And um, I'd like to maybe have you flesh out a little bit sure. perhaps the distinction between constructive criticism and destructive criticism. You know, if I hadn't been criticized quite a bit as I was, been, as I was growing up, I probably wouldn't be here at a youth conference today. I'd probably be doing a whole lot of other things. Okay, okay good, good questions. Um, 
Somebody else asked me a very, very similar question, and the question was, how do you deal with sin in the church? How do you do? What do you do? Do you say, I'm going to move to another Adventist church across town? And, uh, you know, how do you deal with that in a local congregation? Let me give you some basic biblical principles of dealing with sin. The first thing that I want to know before I approach anybody is that the Holy Spirit gives me permission to do that. Does that make sense to you? So the first step before you say anything or do anything is to be sure you have the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. Before I would speak to somebody else about a sin in their life, I would want to be sure that I was on my knees before God praying asking the Holy Spirit to impress my heart with the right words to say and to impress their heart before I ever spoke to them on the need for that discussion. I was in a meeting recently where I really saw the Holy Spirit work dramatically. A friend of mine and I were giving Bible studies, and we were giving Bible studies to a young man and his wife, not his wife, a young man and his girlfriend who were living together. It was a distant state from here, but this young man was living with his girlfriend and they had a child together. This young man was a former Seventh-day Adventist and his girlfriend never was an Adventist. They had a child and we began to give Bible studies to them. I was preaching a series on the Holy Spirit. This young man came to the meetings, and his live-in girlfriend came. Just before I got up to preach, my friend, who was joining me in giving the Bible studies to this young man, and I had now moved on, and my friend was giving the Bible studies now, said to me, Now, Mark, so-and-so is living with so-and-so, and I just need your counsel. How do I approach them? They're living in open sin. We're studying the Bible together. How do I deal with that? What do I do? And so we talked about a strategy. We talked about how to do it. At the end of the meeting, my friend came to me at the end of the evening. He said, Mark, I am so excited. And I said, what do you mean? He said, this young man was just in your meeting, and he came to me at the end of the meeting, and he said, you know, I'm living together. We're not married, and I really need to do something about that, and I really, the Holy Spirit is convicting me that I ought to be married. One of the things that I've discovered is this, that a lot of the things that we need to, we think we need to correct, God is well able to take care of. So the first thing I want to be sure of is that I'm on my knees, that I'm praying, that I have the right attitude and the right spirit, and I'm asking God to work in their lives. I want to ask God for permission to go to that person. I pray about it over a period of time. If God gives me permission, I go in a spirit of humility, in a humble spirit, and I approach the other individual directly, not in a group, and I will say to that other person, now, brother, I may be mistaken about this, and I know that there are areas in my life that are not in harmony with God's will, but there is an area of concern that I have that I want to discuss with you. And I do it as a Christian brother because I'm concerned about you and I love you. And I discuss it in that context. So that's the context of individual things. 
If it's an individual sin that you believe the Holy Spirit has placed on your heart, the desire to talk to that person in the atmosphere of love, you go in a spirit of love and humility when God gives you permission and you go with somebody else. But there's something that is even deeper than that. What if you're a member of a church? And what if that church is teaching things that are difficult for you to participate in? What if the worship style, what if the whole philosophy of the church, what if you believe that the church you're currently attending is not living in harmony with God's will? How do you deal with that? There's a number of things. First, you recognize that you may not be right. You recognize that you may have perceptions that are not accurate and that you are not, um, you are not God. And so the first thing that I recognize is that my perceptions may be wrong and that I may be not understanding something here. But as I pray about it, as I study it in God's word, and as God brings me a conviction, one of the things that I've learned in my life is this. There's a difference between an impulse and a conviction. A conviction is a growing, constant awareness that God wants me to do something. A conviction is a growing, constant awareness that if I don't do this thing, that I'm not in harmony with God's will. An impulse is flighty. It's here today, gone tomorrow. So I give myself time to pray, to think, to process, and regularly I will get counsel on something like this. And I have a few godly counselors that I'll go to. It's good for every young person to have a godly counselor. At least two or three godly counselors, people that are older, that are more seasoned in the faith, people that you can go to, that you can talk to, counsel with. You know that they're not going to betray your counsel. You know that they are going to give you good counsel. So you pray about it. You study the word about it. You look for godly counselors, two or three godly pastors. You express to them your concerns and you express to them why you're concerned. As that occurs, the Lord is going to give you direction. If the issue is, and you always go to the person who's responsible. So if something's taking place in the youth area, you do not go to your pastor if the youth leader is leading out. You go to the youth leader. Because that person is the one that's responsible. And you share your concerns. If your concerns are in the area of worship with the pastor, you openly share them. He may share with you some things that you have not seen before, and that may bring a unity. But let's suppose that you've done all that. You've prayed about it. You've got godly counsel. You've gone in Christian love. You've talked to the pastor. You have approached key leaders in the church, elders, their concern, your, your concern. Let's suppose that they do not share that concern, or in fact, they think quite oppositely. What do you do? If an atmosphere become t becomes toxic for you, if in that atmosphere you are no longer growing spiritually and it's counterproductive, you look for another Adventist church that's more in harmony with the way you believe, even if you have to drive a half an hour or 40 minutes. My counsel is you stay as long as you can, you work as lovingly as you can, but what you don't allow to happen is you do not allow yourself to become so critical that it splits that church totally apart and it becomes a toxic experience for everybody. It's far better 
for you to pray about it, to get counsel about it, to go to a pastor about it, to go to an elder about it. But church is not church if you go and fight every Sabbath. That's not church. That's not God's intention. If you are not getting a spiritual blessing there, but other people are at a certain state of their spiritual experience where they are, and you have to make a move, you make that move. You always are deferent to the body of Christ. You don't rip that body of Christ apart because God may have ways that he is going to um, deal with that. And, and maybe they are doing some things that are not right. And maybe it's not in the highest ideal of the Bible of the spirit of prophecy. But I'll tell you one thing. If you split the church by ripping that church apart, that may be worse than the music that they're playing. Are you with me? So, so you do everything you can to implement change. You don't sit back and do nothing. But if change cannot be implemented, your alternative is not to split the church apart. Your alternative is to find another congregation where you can worship more in harmony with your will, with God's will. Um, somebody asked me, and we'll do one, there were one or two more questions that I missed. Yes. Now, you talked about offshoots and the danger of them. Hmm? How about companies? Huh? What do you feel about a group forming a company that, again, they're in a situation where the church is not teaching, they feel they're not being taught what they feel they should, and then they create a company within for, you know, traveling dynamics? The, 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 here's what the issues are. If the purpose that you establish the company is to be doctrinally pure, I question your motives. If the purpose you establish a company is for mission and outreach and service, to plant a new congregation and grow, because typically what's going to happen is, oh, here's this main mother church. They're, they're kind of liberal over here, so I'll get this small group so we'll preserve our own unity. And then they begin infighting, and then a, sh a group spritz off from them so if and, and then and you see this splinterization take i know splinterization is a word but <laughs> my wife and i play scrabble she's occasionally and she says that's not a word i say well it's a finleyism i just made it a word <laughs> but anyway um if you um so my concern is so the first thing that i would do in that situation is if there were a group of families I would work with my pastor, I would work with my conference, and I would do it for the purpose of mission and, and to be mission-driven to plant a new congregation in church. Churches that tend to separate from the body because they feel that they need to be pure either develop arrogance. The devil can get you either on pride or he can get you on worldliness, and he doesn't care which, you see. Um, was there somebody over here? Yes. Question for you, Pastor. Mm -hmm. Let's say, for example, that you are a literary evangelist, medical missionary, and uh, someone who have formed a, let's say for words sake, an offshoot congregation, ask you to teach them or train them on how to do the literary evangelistic work slash medical missionary work. Mm. Would that be something you'd advise someone that's in good standing with the church? to help someone who is in a splinter group in that situation? The question is, is your presence endorsing what they're doing? I would choose another alternative. It's not a matter of yes or no. I would say to them, I'm holding a medical missionary training program at this mother church, and you're invited to come. 
I would bring them where I was and test their genuineness rather than going where they were. Because if they come where you are, then it's much more likely that if they take that step, they may take the next step. So I would much rather create an environment where the same content was taught, but I would invite them to come where I was rather than go where they are. Often in my meetings, or regularly, I have uh, all kind of people attending my meetings. I mean, I'll get... uh, um, This last series in Australia, I had the pastor and a good number of the Seventh-day Adventist Reform coming to my meetings. And and, uh, they came to where I was. I had a chance to dialogue with them. And some of them, you know, they come back. And so through the years, that has happened on a a number of occasions. But I always invite them to come where I am. Because by my going where they are, I endorse what they're doing. And I don't want to give that image. Okay. Any other questions here that I missed? Yes, way in the back. All right. Uh, Pastor, why do you once have a family in the church and a preacher preaches some unbiblical doctrine in the church? Why should I do First thing you should not do is stand up and say anything in the service. (laughs) That's the first thing you should not do. Because what that does is it creates conflict. Secondly, the second is you ask the Lord if God is teaching you something that you that the, teaching you something through what He's saying, where you perceive it to be non-biblical, but maybe it is biblical. So you tell the Lord you want to study that issue. If the Holy Spirit convicts you regarding it, you follow the counsel of Matthew 18 and you go to Him directly and you say, Pastor, I didn't quite understand this. It seems to me that this was said, and it seems this is what the Bible and the Spirit of prophecy said. But I don't know. I could be mistaken. I could have misunderstood you. Could you help me on this? I'm a young person. I really need some clarification on this. So you don't go as a teacher. You go as a student, but you raise questions. And um, the Lord will help you. The Lord will guide you through it. And, uh, but, you, but you go. If the Holy Spirit impresses you, you go. There was a young lady way in the back. Yes. Okay. And if you don't really have any there to like study the Bible and really reflect on the Christ, then how can you teach yourself to one of These are the kind of questions I love. That I'm so glad you're probably the only one in the room that's honest enough to ask a question like that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So the question is, and this is not theoretical, it's practical, isn't it? And that's the question I have to ask my own heart. So thank you very much. The question is, how will you not be shaken? How do you know you won't be shaken out? And how do you know that? What if, what if prayer and Bible study aren't something that is on the top of your agenda, how you do it? Let's suppose that a person hadn't eaten for a number of days, would you take them to a salad bar with 78 items on it and fill four plates of food? Is that the way you do it? What would you do if a person hadn't eaten in a number of days? What if a person came to you and said, I don't eat any breakfast? Would you say, well, tomorrow I'm going to give you granola and oatmeal and a prosage and uh, prosage, you know, that's kind of veggie meat. And uh, then I'm going to give you, in addition to that, uh, you know, fried tofu. And I'm going to give you whole wheat pancakes. And is that what you're going to give that person all at one time? My response to your question is this. A relationship with God does not depend on the quantity of time you spend with him necessarily at first. So what I'd like you to do. If you are struggling with your devotions, don't say, I'm going to spend an hour a day. Say, I'm going to spend 10 minutes. Take 10 minutes 
and just begin. And what I suggest is you start with reading the Gospel of John. Start with the Gospel of John and read a little bit. And the more you hunger after God's heart in the Gospel of John, the more he will create a hunger by his Holy Spirit. You can know you will not be shaken out if indeed you're spending some time with God each day and if indeed it's a growing hunger in your heart. So you start where you are because there's no other place to begin. Christ loves you. you you're his child. He wants to save you in his kingdom. He does not want you to be shaken out. And that's the first thing you have to say is this. Christ is my greatest ally. He is not creating conflict, strife, heresy, and all this stuff to shake me out. That's not him. He's holding me in. He is not pushing me out. You know, John chapter 6, verse 37, 38, and 39 says, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Haggai 2, about verse 8 or so, says, He that touches you touches the apple of his eye. Um, uh, you're in my hand, and nobody can pluck you out of my hand. So repeat to yourself the promises of God. I'm in the hand of Christ. Uh, I look to him and not to myself. And day by day, you spend time with him. Not a lot at first. And you begin to hunger after him. Some of you will understand the illustration I'm going to use. If you are a water drinker, if you are a water drinker, you understand what I mean? I don't mean sipper, I mean drinker. If you're one of those eight to ten glasses of water people a day, I always know the people that are eight to ten glasses of water people because they leave three times in my meeting. But anyway, that's, that's, that's another question. If you are drinking eight to ten glasses of water and you only drink four, how do you feel? I mean, my wife, my wife is healthy as anything. I mean, she tries to walk an hour, an hour and a half a day. She drinks 10 glasses of water a day. I mean, she's hydrated, hydrated. If she drinks six glasses of water, she's so thirsty. I've got to get water. I say, you've just been drinking a few minutes ago. You know, she drinks water and drinks water and drinks water. She's thirsty all the time. She's thirsty all the time. Why? Because she's always drinking water. And the more water you drink, the more thirsty you become. That's true. The more water you drink, the more water you want. It's you just, you just crave that water. She says, I'm thirsty. I want more water. It's the way it is with God's word. You start with a little bit. And you drink a little bit, and then you get a greater thirst, and you drink a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. So I'm not going to say to you, oh, if you don't spend an hour a day, two hours a day, you're going to be shaken out. No, what I'm going to say to you is, look, Christ is holding you in. He's not going to let you be shaken out. You just every day spend some time with him. Start little at first, and then you'll have a hunger for him, and it'll grow and grow and grow. All right, we need to go to class today now. 422. Whew. Okay. You going to give me till about 5 o'clock today? All right, I need to do this on the National Sunday. Well, let's pray that the Lord will help me to get through this material in a way that will be powerful. Father in heaven, we're launching into a very important section just now, and I pray that as we do, that the Holy Spirit would gather in the wanderings and musings of our mind, focus them on the topic for the afternoon, and help us to be able to understand where the world is headed, what's leading it there, and how we can survive the coming crisis. In Jesus' name, amen. The man at the reservoir watched the water and it was getting higher and higher and higher and higher. And he looked at it and he said, should I or should I not sound the alarm for the village below? It was getting a little higher. And he said, no, I know what's going to happen. It's going to subside. And then he said, what if I do sound the alarm? Those people are going to wake up. It's in the middle of the night. And what if the water subsides and it never overflows the dam anyway? They're going to be upset with me. I'm not going to do it. Within three hours, 
the reservoir overtook the dam and the entire village was destroyed. There comes a time when it's important to sound the alarm, not in an alarmist way, but because a crisis is coming. And it's only as we know what the crisis is that people are prepared for that crisis. And that's what the book of Revelation does. It reveals the crisis on the road ahead. Now, if you look at uh, session four, page three, left-hand side, whom will you worship? The central issue in the final conflict is loyalty to God. And the central issue is worship. If you look at the great controversy that began in heaven over 6,000 years ago, and you see Lucifer and his attack on God's throne, the issue was worship. Who will you worship? If you look at the great controversy down through the ages, it would be, do you worship Baal? Do you worship Amun-Ra, the god of the Egyptians? Do you worship Bel-Marduk, the god of the Babylonians? Do you worship the Apollo and Athenas and Zeus, the gods of the Romans? Who do you worship? So in the last days, the issue is worship. We are created to worship. Revelation 14, verse 7. You'll remember reading that. Revelation 14 and verse 7. Outlines that the issue is worship. God gives us an invitation to worship the Creator. He says in Revelation 14, verse 7, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And do what? Next word. Worship Him. So there is a call to worship the Creator in Revelation 14, verse 7. Revelation 14, verse 9 is a warning for those who do what? Worship the beast. Because what does it say there in the box? If any man worships the what? Beast. So there are two worships. One worship calling us to worship the Creator, and the other worship calling us to worship the beast. So there are two worships. Who we worship has to do with our eternal salvation at end time. Now, God gives us two identifying characteristics of his people at end time. One group worship the creator, the other group worships the beast. But in the context of the time of the end, in Revelation 14, verse 12, he says, Here is the patience or the endurance of the saints, the believers. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So at the end time, God's people have two identifying characteristics. What are they? They keep the commandments of what? God, and they have the faith of what? Jesus. So God is looking for a people who at the end time are so in love with Jesus that his faith fills their hearts. But that faith which fills their hearts leads them to an obedience to keep God's commandments. Great Controversy, page 582. You'll see it right across from the Ten Commandments on page uh, 4. You see the Ten Commandments symbol? You see the statement. Page 4. Two identifying characteristics of God's people in the last days. We've said to keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. I want you to read the statement with me on Great Controversy, page 582. Reading together. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering... A battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah. So the central issue in the final conflict is worship. Worship finds its focal point in the law of God. And the final struggle will be over the law of God. Now if you look into heaven with the battle between Christ and Satan in heaven, the issue was over the law of God. Lucifer said it's not necessary to obey. 
Lucifer said that created beings were superior to the creator, that they could judge in and of themselves what was right and what was wrong. It was not necessary to obey. Lucifer came to the Garden of Eden, and what did he say to Eve? Has God really said that you can't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? It's not necessary to obey. All through the Old Testament, the same idea. It's not necessary to obey. You come now to the last conflict, and the issue is over the law of God. Now, Satan will ultimately create a counterfeit religious revival. We've looked at a profile of what's going to happen in the last days. What have we discovered? The gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. As the gospel is preached, it will create a reaction of Satan. He will bring, in the time of that latter rain loud cry, a counterfeit religious revival. Actually, he'll bring it before that time to deceive God's people. As his counterfeit spirit is poured out, and as the latter rain loud cry are given, we will see calamity. We will see natural disasters. We will see economic chaos. We will see war, conflict, and strife. This will lead to the establishment of the National Sunday Law. What is going to lead to the union of church and state? What will bring about that union of church and state in end time? Church and state will be united in end time as there is conflict and strife in the world. Now let me show that to you in the Bible. We're going to look at some quite amazing things. We're going to look at Revelation 17, just momentarily. Revelation 17. And then we're going to look at Revelation 18. Revelation 17, Revelation 18. Now let's go back and pick up something in Revelation 13. The question we're asking is, what are the events that will lead up to the union of church and state? What are the events that ultimately will lead up to the repudiation of religious freedom in America that will be followed by the world? What are the events that will lead up to what we would call this National Sunday Law? What are those events? Well, first we've said that there would be a false religious revival. You see that in Revelation 13. What's going to lead up to the enforcement of the image of the, mar of the beast? Revelation 13, and we're going to look at verse 13. He performs great signs or miracles so that he makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. He deceives those. Now, wait a minute. He makes fire on earth, fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. I've had people say to me, oh, that fire, that must be a nuclear bomb that comes down. How do you interpret the Bible? You interpret the Bible how? By the Bible. When's the first time fire is mentioned in the Bible? Anybody that did not go through my Holy Spirit seminar. Okay. Some of my students are here. When's the first time fire is mentioned in the Bible? Cain and Abel, yes. But Genesis 3. Because remember, the angel had a what? Fiery sword. So the angel with the fiery sword represented the presence of God, standing guard that the Adam and Eve couldn't come back into the garden to partake of the tree of life. When fire is mentioned at the burning bush. What did fire at the burning bush represent? The presence of God. A pillar of fire guided uh, Israel by night. What did that represent? The presence of God. Um, the sanctuary was built in the Old Testament and the fiery Shekinah glory was between the cherubim. What did that represent? 
presence of God. Um, are you seeing a pattern here? Uh, what about uh, Elijah when he poured water on the altar and fire come down? What did that represent? Presence of God. Tongues of fire in the book of Acts represented what? The presence of God through what? The Holy Spirit. So fire always represents the presence of God. So here is fire comes down from heaven. Here is the false Holy Ghost fire in a false manifestation of the presence of God in signs, wonders, and miracles in the churches that lead up to the enforcement of the mark of the beast. Do you see that? Look at verse 13. He performs great signs. He makes fire come down from heaven. He deceives those, verse 14, who dwell on the earth by means of those miracles or signs that he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast. So why do they make an image to the beast? The beast is a false religious leader. The image to the beast is a type of, it is the counterfeit or the opposite of the law of God. So it's the, see, an image always is something which is the opposite of the genuine. You have the image in Daniel 3 of gold, which is the opposite of the genuine in Daniel what? 2. So, The image in Revelation 13 is the image to the beast, not the image to Jesus. The Sabbath is the sign or the image of Jesus, because as you keep the Sabbath, you want the Creator to recreate your heart. You you rest on Sabbath. Sabbath is a symbol of righteousness by faith, not righteousness by works. See, the devil's got it all mixed up. He says, oh, Sunday is a symbol of righteousness by faith, but Sabbath is a symbol of righteousness by works. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. Sabbath is a symbol of righteousness by faith. Sunday is a symbol of righteousness by works. How so? When we keep Sabbath, we rest from our labors, just like Christ rested on the cross in the completed salvation. So we rest every Sabbath. We're resting in the power and care of the one that created the world. We're resting in the love and grace of the one that redeemed the world. We are resting from our works and accepting his work on the cross. So Sabbath is a symbol of rest. Sabbath connects us to Eden lost. It connects us to the cross and it connects us to the coming of Christ because Sabbath reminds us of the day when God's going to recreate the heavens and the earth in Edenic splendor. So Sabbath leads me to creation and I rest in a completed creation. I rest in a completed redemption and I rest in a God who's going to complete the work at end time. That's Sabbath. What about Sunday? See, Cain had righteousness by faith because he did what God said. I mean, Abel had righteousness by faith because he did what God said. (laughs) Cain had righteousness by works because he did what he he felt was right. So Cain's offering was righteousness by works. Abel's offering was righteousness by faith. So if I accept a man's work, a man who's changed the Sabbath, I accept that in the place of the Sabbath itself, and if I accept the counterfeit Sabbath in the place of the true Sabbath, then I'm accepting the works of man, and that's saying that I can establish the offering of Cain and do what I want to do. And that's righteousness by works, not righteousness by faith. So Sunday has to do with righteousness by works because we accept a day that man has instituted, not a day that God has instituted. And Sunday is legalism because it is doing that which man commands, not doing what God commands. Sabbath is a symbol of grace because I rest in his love and care. Do you see the difference between the two? And that's what the devil's got all mixed up in our day. So we look here at Revelation. 
And uh, chapter 13, what is the image? The image is the counterfeit Sabbath that is an image made to man in contradistinction to the genuine, authentic Sabbath that God has given us. Why do many keep the counterfeit image of the Sabbath? The reason they do that is because of miracles and wonders and signs that are performed in those churches in a false religious revival that attempt to give them credibility. But where is all this going to lead? Look, please, at Revelation 16. Revelation 16. This is during the period of the plagues. We'll study the plagues in the morning. For they are the spirits of demons. What are they the spirits of? They are the spirits of demons working what? Miracles which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Here it is. What's happening? God's work is going forward. Latter rains being poured out. Loud cries being given. Satan has worked before that with a counterfeit religious revival. The devil trying to bring all the world into a single unity at a time of conflict, strife, and calamity. The devil uh, brings about the threefold union of Protestantism, Catholicism, and Paganism. The thing that unifies them all is a single common day of worship. And uh, how does he do that to bring this final battle of Armageddon, this final attempt uh, to uh, stamp out the people of God? The spirits of demons performing signs go out to the kings of the earth to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So here you have the false miracles. Last text on false miracles tells you why many receive the mark of the beast. Revelation 19, verse 20. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Who was it that received the mark of the beast? Why did they receive the mark of the beast? What deceived them? Because they accepted the false what? False miracles. So we have those false miracles working. I would like you to notice how all of this comes together with two powerful statements from the writings of Ellen White. We're looking on session four, page five, and we're going to look at the two statements, then we're going to look at the chart. Uh, Great Controversy, page 590. This is session four, page five, Great Controversy, 590. And then the great deceiver will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils. The class that provoked the displeasure of heaven will charge all their troubles upon those whose obedience to God's commandments is a perpetual reproof to transgressors. It will be declared that men are offending God by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath, that this sin has brought calamities which will not cease until the Sunday observance shall be strictly enforced, and that those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. Why do they come to that point? You'll not understand that conclusion of why Adventists will be considered to be on the outlaws of society unless you understand Great Controversy 589 and 590, which is on the previous page. The previous page, the box on the previous page, it says, while appearing. While appearing to the children of man as a great physician who can heal all their maladies, he, Satan, will bring disease and disaster until the populous cities are reduced to ruin and desolation. What's going to happen to the populous cities? They're reduced to what? Ruin and desolation. But what does he do? He appears to be the great physician, and he, on the one hand, he's working in false revival, 
and apparent miracles. And on the other hand, he's doing what? He's working to destroy cities. Even now he's at work in accidents and calamities by sea, by land, in great conflagrations, fires, fierce tornadoes, terrific hailstorms, and tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves. In every place in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. Now, what will eventually happen? Great controversy right above the chart, 592. Rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, what's public favor? Popularity, to get elected, votes, will yield to the popular demand. Where does the demand come from? It's a what kind of a demand? The demand comes from a dictator, right? The man comes from where? The demand comes from where? The people. Now, where in the Bible, in Revelation 13, how do you know in Revelation 13 that the demand comes from the people? When it's talking about making an image to the beast, what word is used? It's a very fascinating word, and Ellen White picks up on this one word. It's Revelation chapter 13, and it says... I'm looking. I'll tell you in one second. Okay. Revelation 13, and it says, They shall make an image to the beast. 14. 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by means of those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those that dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. So those who dwell on earth. Is there another translation you have? Some translation says, They shall make an image to the beast. But this translation says, those who dwell on earth will make an image to the beast. Who, is it th- who are the those that dwell on earth? Or the they? Who's that? That's the people. Exactly right. So this is not some earthly dictator, not some Orwellian big brother. This is the people. Red, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Now look at the chart. On the left-hand side... You have the threefold union, Catholicism, Protestantism, and spiritualism. They unite because of false revivals in Catholicism, false revivals in Protestantism, and false revivals in spiritualism. They unite because there's miracles in Catholicism, miracles in Protestantism, miracles in spiritualism. They unite based on these false doctrines of the immortality of the soul, and essentially what happens is they say, We need a common day of rest and worship to bring us all together in a single unity. Why? Because on the other side of the chart, at the time that the left-hand threefold union is occurring, on the right-hand side of the chart, what's happening? There's natural disasters. There's war. There's economic what? Calamity. There's famine. There's earthquake. There's great economic depressions. And so those things are happening. So there is a popular demand. And what is the popular demand? Only if we had a common day of rest and worship. Only if everybody were united. What's the popular demand? Only if everybody were worshiping God together. Drop drop these differences. Sure, Baptists will still be Baptists and Pentecostals will still be Pentecostals and Hindus will be Hindus. It doesn't mean that all Muslims are going to become Catholics. Not at all. But under convenience, because a great crisis occurs, and because miracles are going to be worked in all of these various religious bodies, they will say, we will accept a single common day of rest and worship to worship our God in the context of our own personalities, in the context of our own religions. It's not that there's one super world religion, not at all. 
See, there's all these people that have these ideas about secret societies and people trying to blend into this one great world religion. Not at all. They unite on the points they have in common. Now, notice how Ellen White says this. Great Controversy 588. Through the true great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan brings the people under the deceptions. While the former lays the foundation for spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of unity with sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States, who is this now? Protestants will be the what? Foremost. So we should expect to see great mighty miracles sweeping through the Protestant churches. We should expect to see some of their churches packed. We should expect to see thousands going to their churches. Oh, I want to go there to learn church growth. You may learn church growth, but you may learn something else too. Maybe it's not the kind of growth that God wants. If Constantine were running a seminar on church growth, how to pack the church in the fourth century, would you go? I better continue reading. I go to preaching sometime. Through the great, two great heirs, immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation for spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States will be the foremost in stretching their hands across the Gulf to, con- to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power and under the influence of this threefold union, spiritualism, Protestantism, and Catholicism, This country will follow in the steps of Rome and trampling on the rights of conscience. What happens? In this time of crisis, where there is religious revival, the union takes place. And it's not that denominational differences are dropped. It is rather that you maintain your denominational differences, but unite on two points. The immortality of the soul, which opens you for the false miracles and spiritualism, and Sunday sacredness. So we can all worship, you know, why are you guys so different? You know, why are you so strange and odd? And and look at the war, look at the conflict, look at the strife. Couldn't you set aside the first day of the week with the rest of society to seek God in prayer? Why don't you open your churches for prayer and revival that day? I mean, look what's happening in us. This is the obvious moving of the Spirit of God. I mean, this is the obvious. Look at the tongues, look at the prophecy, look at the miracles. Why don't you go along? But Seventh-day Adventists recognize that this is all a fulfillment of prophecy. And they recognize that this is the counterfeit revival, that it's not dealing with the fruits of the Spirit. It's dealing with sensationalism. It's dealing with signs and wonders. We want to be united, but we want to unite on God's truth. We believe in the true ecumenical movement, and the true ecumenical movement is the true unity movement of John 17, sanctify them through thy word, thy word is truth. We believe that God will have a true unity movement of all faiths and creeds that he's leading together that unite under the true banner of his word and under the banner of the Sabbath before he comes again. We do not accept the fact that um, signs, wonders, and uh, bring people together in this kind of unity. And what will ultimately happen, turn over please to the next page, what I want you to see is that there will be an increasing magnitude in the National Sunday Law and the way that happens. And so we're going to look at the five, the crescendo. See, loud cry, 
latter rain, the latter rain is a crescendo. God begins to part his spirit and it increases. The shaking is a crescendo. These are not events on a calendar. They begin, but they, they come to a culmination. Same with the National Sunday Law. First, there are laws passed, and, but the, the, the penalties get tighter and tighter, as I'll show. Notice increasing magnitude of the National Sunday Law, Session 4, page 6. First, negative tide of public opinion. That's what you're writing in there. Negative tide of public opinion. You're looking, Session 4, page 6, increasing magnitude of the National Sunday Law. The first thing that happens is the ne negative tide of public opinion. Ellen White, Great Controversy 592. That's negative tide of public opinion. Those who honor the Bible Sabbath will be denounced as enemies of law in order, as breaking down the moral restraints of society, as causing anarchy and corruption, as calling down the judgments of God upon the earth. Their conscientious scruples will be pronounced obstinacy and stubbornness and contempt of authority. They'll be accused of disaffection toward the government. So the tide of public opinion turns against the Sabbath keepers. Notice the clear language. It is they're, 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 it's declared that they're stubborn, that they don't go along with authority, that they're accused of disaffection. So that's the first. The tide of public opinion turns against them. The second thing that happens is number two. They are offered rewards or punishment. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did, didn't he? He said, if you interpret the dream, I will give you rewards. You'll get up to, you'll get wealth in the kingdom. But if you don't interpret the dream, I'll cut off your head and you'll really be in trouble then. But notice, rewards are punishment. So first, the tide of negative public opinion goes against them. Then they're offered rewards or punishment. Number two. Ellen White, Great Controversy, 592 and 607. The dignities of the church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor Sunday. They'll unite to bribe, persuade, or compel. So they bribe you. They say, we're going to give you this. Jeremiah says, if they've run with the footmen, if you've run with the footmen, they've wearied thee. How can you contend with the horses? If they dangle overtime before you on Sabbath and you accept it today and you sell out and play the Judas today, how are you possibly going to stand in the crisis? Oh, I'm going to stand then. I'm going to stand then. But you don't stand today. You're unfaithful in your tithe today. No amount of money is going to keep me in the time of crisis. But I need to pay my tuition at school, so I'm unfaithful in tithe. Step by step, they yielded. God gives us in his gracious mercy test today. Not because the test in itself is so important, but because the character that we develop in following him is important. And when you follow him today in financial matters, you'll follow him tomorrow in financial matters. But when you're unfaithful in tithe today, you will, you will yield to the bribes that they offer you then. Because the love of money will be deep within your heart and the lack of faith. So God invites us today in his grace and his love and mercy to be faithful to the test that he gives us today so we can triumph with him tomorrow. Oh, Nothing is going to get me to give up Christ. Buying and selling well, I, for food. Well, that, 
What? Really now? I would never give up my faith for food. Where were those 17 chocolate eclairs? You get the point? If I cannot control my appetite today, is there somebody listening to me today? If I were preaching in an African-American church, I'd say, do I have a witness? I love it. I love it. Somebody give me a witness, please. That's it. That's it. That's it. Okay. Now I feel at home. Let me ask you this, you see. If I cannot control my appetite today, oh, I'll never sell out Jesus. Oh, sure. But I haven't practiced healthful living in my life. Can't control. God is so gracious, isn't he? God is so gracious. If there was no secret that I was ever told that I can't keep, if every time I hear something, I go around and say, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? If I haven't learned to be discreet with what I say today, will I be one of the betrayers in the time of trouble that's coming? See, this message is not simply for people in the future. This message is for you and me today. It's a call to be faithful in our stewardship to Jesus. It's a call to be so in Christ that my body is given to him, that I control my lusts and my passions today. Because if there's something you can't control, the devil's going to play on that. He's going to trip you up on that thing. You can't control your passions, I'll tell you something. You can't control those passions. The devil's going to play on that. And he's going he's to deal with you when the crisis breaks. Surrender your passions to him today. Surrender your body to him today. Surrender your appetites to him today. Surrender today to this living Christ, your finance. Be faithful in your tithe. Be faithful to your friends. When they tell you something, don't go blabbing that to every other person that walks by in the name of Christian sanctity. Mary told me this. I know I shouldn't be saying much, but oh, I love her so much that I just had to tell you. If you love her that much, Learn what to say and what not to say because there'll be a time that what you say is absolutely critical. One of the things the Soviet Christians taught me, I spent hour after hour with them, great godly men and women, who if they slipped one word, they could put a fellow in prison during the days of communism. But they were faithful to Christ and they knew how to be discreet in what they said. Ask God to give you a sanctified tongue. Ask him to do that. Okay, so what's happening? There will be negative public opinion. There will be rewards and punishment. There will be three, an economic boycott. You're right for three, economic boycott. In the last great conflict, Desire of Ages 121-122, of the great controversy with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off. Because they refuse to break his law in obedience to earthly powers, they'll be forbidden to buy or sell. No buying or selling. We'll learn dependence on God. The Bible says, though, our bread and water shall be sure. What a day. Totally dependent on him. So today, if you have to pray about some tuition money in school, thank God you are learning to lift the weights of faith. You see, you don't, you don't bench press. 
285 pounds the first try. You got to begin with those little 10 pound weights, right? So if God gives you some little trials today, thank his name for them. Fourthly, it says, Great Controversy 608, the defenders of truth refuse to honor the Sunday Sabbath. Some of them will be thrust into prison. Some will be exiled. Some will be treated as slaves. Slavery return. There will be imprisonment. Number four is imprisonment. Will be exiled. And fifth, of course, is all who refuse compliance will be visited with civil penalties and will be finally declared that they are deserving of what? Death. So last is the death penalty. So it begins with a negative tide of public opinion. Then you're offered rewards or punishment. Then there's the economic boycott. Nobody can buy or sell. Then finally there's imprisonment. And ultimately there will be what? Death. The scientists of Great Eastern University, one of these Ivy League schools, were doing some amazing experiments on lambs. This is what they did. They took a lamb and they put it in the pen. But they put in that pen about a dozen feeding stations where the lamb could go to this feeding station and eat, this feeding station and eat, this feeding station and eat, this feeding station and eat. And they hooked up electrodes to give a mild shock to to the lamb. So as this lamb went over to the feeding station, the scientists who were outside the pen, who could observe the lamb, but the lamb couldn't see them, the scientist shocked the lamb as she went over to feeding station number two. And the lamb ran. This is what they noticed about the lamb. The lamb would never go back to the feeding station where it was shocked. That's a pretty smart lamb. I mean, if I put my hand on the, on the feeding station, it shocks me. I'm not going back there either. The, feeding sta- the, the, the lamb went to feeding station number two, shocked it, ran over to feeding station number four. They shocked it, ran over to feeding station number five, shocked it. And over a period of hours that day, they shocked the lamb at every single feeding station. The poor little lamb was shocked so much that it came to the center of the pen and it began to quiver and quiver and quiver and had a nervous breakdown, heart attack, and died. They wanted to find out how much stress this lamb could take. They took a second lamb, the twin lamb of that first lamb, and they put the twin lamb in the feeding pen. One difference, they put the mother of the twin lamb in the feeding pen with her. The little lamb went over, began to eat feeding station number one. They shocked her. She ran. Where do you think she ran? To mother. This is where the scientific experiment broke down because she went ba-ba and did something in her mama's ear and mama went ba-ba and... Scientists couldn't interpret that well. (laughs) And this lamb ran right over to the feeding station where she was shocked and kept eating. They shocked her again. And she looked up. And Mama went ba-ba, and she went ba-ba. And she kept eating. The second little lamb had some place to run. And the shocks of life did not cause her to collapse. In the coming crisis, it's not how strong you are, it's how strong he is. Do you have some place to run in the shocks of life? There may be somebody here that over the last month you've been going through some real trials in your life. You've been going through some real heartache in your life and some real disappointment in your life. You've been shocked at this feeding station and that feeding station. You've been shocked at school. Things haven't gone as well as you wished and grades didn't go as well. 
You've been shocked in some relationship that you had with a Christian young man or a Christian young woman and it was going well and you thought that that person was the one that God was leading you to, but that relationship broke up. Maybe there's a single parent here and things have gone real rough for you and you feel isolated and alone. You've been shocked. Maybe there's somebody here that even in your church, things haven't gone real well for you and you have been shocked. And you kind of came to GYC wondering whether you're even going to hang in there anymore or not because you've been shocked so much. Maybe it's with your health. Things aren't going too good. In the shocks of life, he is there. And every minor shock that he allows us, he doesn't send those shocks, but in every minor shock that he allows us to have today, it's because he's helping us to run to him more quickly. He's helping us to depend on him more, more, more fully. He's helping us to find grace and peace and strength in him, in Jesus and through Jesus and because of Jesus. There is no way that the shocks of life can destroy you. You don't have to worry about the coming time of trouble as long as you're sheltered in his arms, as long as he is your friend. Let's sing it together. What a friend we have in Jesus. in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear sing it from your heart sing it from your heart let the words come from your heart think about every word everything to God have we trials and temptations trials and temptations. Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in What's that next verse? friend worth having. In the trials of life, in the shocks of life, you're there. And Father, sometimes we got pretty upset. We've fallen apart when things have happened to us. But oh Lord, we long so much to allow our trials like that little lamb to drive us to you. To allow the shocks of life like that lamb to send us to you. Lord, we really long to know you better. Father, we do not live in fear. We live in hope and confidence. And so, Father, I pray thee tonight that you'd send us from this place with hearts filled with your love, your grace, your goodness, and your courage. Help us to know that you're our best friend, that you hold our hand, and that in the conflict to come, you're there by our side, and you are going to get us through. Lord, we think of ourselves and we know our weakness.
weakness. We look to you and we thank you for your strength. Thank you that in Jesus we are secure. In Christ's name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at www.audioverse.org and at www.hopevideo.com.